0: The Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Emmett Kelly, CD, Brigade Sergeant Major, 41 Canadian Brigade Group, Reserve Infantry Corps Chief Warrant Officer.
1: Growing up in Montreal... It was a curious time to to join the military, and the Canadian military in Montreal and in Quebec at the time was not overly well received, but it was still a valued institution.
0: Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. To start off this episode, I'd like to look at some of the feedback I've received over the last little while. I haven't really looked at feedback for quite some time. The first piece of feedback I'd like to look at is from Mark Carlson, and Mark Carlson comes from the United States. He says, this was the first of your podcast I listened to, and he's referring to the year one look back and review. He goes on to say, very good work. It hooked me, and now I'm enjoying listening to the episodes from the beginning. I have a strong appreciation for my Canadian brothers and sisters as an American married to a great Canadian lady. In 2007, we visited CFB Shiloh. I was so impressed with the young soldiers we met and talked with there. Thank you for putting this podcast together. I look forward to getting current with the episodes and posting a review on iTunes. Mark from Iowa, USA. Thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate the feedback, and it is interesting the international reach that the show is getting. I have an app on my WordPress, which is what I use to upload the episodes, the program I use, and it tells me which countries are actually listening to the show, and I get a kick out of how many people from all over the world listen to the show and tune in. Now, I got into a little bit of a conversation with some of the feedback that I received from Gord Tolton. He asked me if I had ever considered shows in regards to military history about the 1885 Northwest Rebellion, and I basically said, well, it'd be very difficult to find a guest to interview. So his notion was that I would interview a historian, but essentially that's not my show. I'm interested in interviewing military veterans, past, present, and future, and interviewing authors is not really what I'm looking for. But it was a great idea, great suggestion. It's just not the direction I want to take the show right now. Thanks, Gord, for your feedback. Over the summer, I posted a picture of two patches I bought during the summer. One is the patch of the Canadian Army 2nd Special Service Force, and it's otherwise known as the Oson's patch or Oson. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's essentially a dagger with a pair of wings. And that patch was worn throughout CFB Petawawa in the time period when I joined the military. I also purchased a patch known as the Force Mobile Command Badge, and that patch had to do with what the name of the Canadian Army was at the time, Force Mobile Command or FMC. And this is a distinctive patch with the Canadian maple leaf and then four arrows pointing out of it in all four directions. And Tom Quigley put some feedback down saying, sort of unsettling when something you wore every day has become part of our heritage. I think I'll sit down for a moment so hopefully he's recovered and he's feeling better by now after seeing that bits and pieces of his uniform are now historic icons there is another piece of feedback i can't find it right now but i have it memorized it's from Warrant Officer Mike Case of the Lawrence Scots, and he posted after the year one look back and review, and essentially he said he was really appreciative of having another episode and that he was going into withdrawals. So I hope he's recovered as well. So we've had the look back and review as well as the episode with Private Rig, and here we are with the second episode of the second year. So hopefully Warrant Officer Mike Case, a great supporter of the show, is still listening and he's tuning in and he's getting his fix. The last piece of feedback I'm going to look at right now is from Mark Carlson once again. He's replying to the infographic I posted of all the trades that have been interviewed so far. He says, this is an incredible podcast. I am enjoying it. I'm listening to episode 15, W2 Sam McGee, at the moment as I work myself current. Great work. The funny thing about that infographic is it's got such a disparity between the infantry and the other trades that I've interviewed so far. And seems like that trend is continuing with the lineup of guests I've selected so far. Hopefully I can get some more guests of different trades other than infantry. And of course, by branching away from the infantry, hopefully I'll get some guests from the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Canadian Navy. I do have some interesting guests lined up and it just seems to me as being an infantry soldier in the Canadian Army that I keep gravitating back to the infantry. So with your good efforts and your good support, hopefully I can find some guests outside of my arcs and I would really appreciate that. So I want you to know that I appreciate all the feedback. Any feedback that I get on the show is helpful. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can post on Facebook, like the people that I've just read, or you can send me an email at mikelecoascmhp@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And most importantly, you can leave some feedback on iTunes. Just go to iTunes, click on the podcast link, and go ahead, leave some feedback. What that does is it helps other people find the show so it gets me some new listeners, people just like you who enjoy the show, who just don't know about it yet, and when they search for military topics to listen to, they'll come across my show because of your feedback. So take the minute or two and give me some feedback on iTunes as well. Another thing about feedback is I am always looking for guests. If you know somebody who has a compelling story, I would appreciate to hear from you or from that person so that I can get their story recorded. So my guest today is Chief Warrant Officer Emmett Kelly. Emmett and I met in Sierra Leone. We were two chief warrant officers on one mission working side by side and we had a really good time we created a lot of memorable experiences ourselves and some of the stories we probably shouldn't share especially on recorded medium. Emmett lives out in Calgary and he works in construction and construction management. One of the funny stories about Emmett is that when we were at the Canadian Army strategic planning session in Ottawa, he got a text message saying that he was a grandpa. So he had a little baby granddaughter that was born in September and that happened while he was away with the Army. So one of the things that happens to you when you're part of this organization, when you're away from your usual lines and your usual arcs, Here's my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Emmett Kelly. Chief Warrant Officer Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Mike, it is my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me into your podcast. You're very welcome. So, Emmett, you and I first met by email during your lead up to Ops Sculpture, and then we finally met in person when you arrived in Sierra Leone.
1: Yeah, that we did. I think it was a case of being able to touch base with the at of time, because, of course, you were working with my commanding officer at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon. So I just want to get that sort of a sense of what things were, and then we finally got a chance to actually meet face-to-face when I showed up in theater.
0: Yeah, and then I promptly went off to leave and left you to run the Sierra Leone Sergeant Major's course.
1: Yeah, I don't believe I've actually ever thanked you directly for running away in the first week. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's true. It was a case of, I thought it was great that we finally touched base and you sent me an email while I was wrapping up pre-deployment training in Kingston. And the email said, well, here's the, the course syllabus. And by the way, I'm going to be gone though and leave when you get here. So we had about three or four days of handover and then you left me to hit the ground running in Sierra Leone. So once again, thanks for that.
0: Yeah. Well, I knew you were more than capable of running a simple Sergeant Major's course. But anyhow.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks, Mike.
0: Wait a second. Didn't I meet you in Army headquarters? No, it wasn't me. No, that's someone else. That looks like you. Yeah, it's correct. You would have met Colonel Kelly, Chief of Reserves. Right. Yes, your twin brother.
1: Yes, identical twin brother. We both joined as privates and became Master Corporals, and then we chose different paths. There we go. Yeah. So I had to throw that in there.
0: So I sent you the four questions ahead of time. Are you ready? I am. Excellent. Why don't you tell me why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces?
1: Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much a case of joining as a case of I'd being exposed to it throughout my life. My father was a, uh, a regimental sergeant major for a three field engineer in Montreal as a reservist. He'd been in the cadet program prior to that, so obviously, growing up, we'd grown up around the Hillside Armories in West Mountain, Montreal. We'd been exposed to that throughout our lives. In all honesty, my mom had been in the signals regiment there as well. So as kids, we hung around the armory a lot. It was just somewhere we went to. And then we ended up joining the cadet program as Army cadets, uh, originally with the engineers. And then uh, after one summer of training as Army cadets, my brother and I decided that being in the engineers wasn't cool enough. We went over to the Black Watch and joined the cadet corps there, which was, which was a little tough on my dad to be a lifetime engineer, but he understood. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, I did uh, five years in the cadet program. And then in uh, 1982, having already been exposed to the military at great expense, decided that joining the reserves was the way to go. What was the world like when you joined? Uh, 1982, uh, the date I got sworn in is December 1, 1982. It's one of those dates that sort of sticks out there every year. <laughs> the world at the time was uh, the Cold War is coming to a close. The Russians were still our sworn enemies. We were ready to, to roll across Germany and defend it, do what we had to do. Growing up in Montreal, it was a case of politically, this is the, the first town for the Party Quebecois. Quebec things are a little tough, a little tense. It was, it was a curious time to, to join the military, and the Canadian military in Montreal and in Quebec at the time was not overly well received, but it was still a valued institution. So right. it, was, it was a curious time to, to join, but it was something i had looked forward to doing, so I had no issues with
0: it. That Black Watch Armoury is so prominent in downtown Montreal as well. It's such a nice piece of architecture, a nice place to visit.
1: So it's one of the things, like I'm currently at Western in Calgary, and one of the things we miss out here is the old armories that the regiments own. And in the case of the Black Watch, they've been on that piece of property since the 1860s, Right. Uh, the, regiment would have, the regiment having been formed in 1862. That building is just such a great, fantastic building with so much history, so many memories in it. And a lot of people don't know. You go into it and you look around, but there's floors below the basement, like sub-basement levels. Right. Going back to original archives from World War One, like shoe boxes of men's <laughs> personal effects that still sit in that basement. Wow. Well. I never
0: got to tour that deep in the building. I knew there was a basement, but I never knew there was anything below that.
1: Well, there's all that there, and they've been fortunate, too, because they'd survived a fire back in the 50s, which destroyed a good portion of the archives in the building and a good portion of the museum. But they were managed to, uh, to rebuild it and get it good to go again.
0: Well, that's interesting you bring up the museum, because I toured the newly renovated and newly restored museum at the Black Watch Armory in Montreal.
1: Yeah, and that is quite the nice museum, though. They've done such a fantastic job of keeping that. And the fact that it's at the regimental home station, that means so much. Absolutely. So what were you like when you joined? Uh, <laughs> I was ready to conquer the world. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'd gone through five years in the cadet program and I'd moved up about as high as I could. And I'd actually done my last summer in cadets attached to 3RCR in Bodden and Solgen, getting ready for the, the build-up to Reforger. I'd spent the summer basically as a private in, in a rifle section and learning how to do that. That really gave me a taste for where I wanted to go in the fall. So joining the reserves really wasn't that much of a jump, but I was ready for it. But to show you how small the Army is at sometimes, the Section 2IC that I had in Germany in 1982, a guy named Dan Whitaker, the next time I ran into Dan Whitaker was many, many years later, was out here in the West. And at that point, he was Lieutenant Colonel Dan Whitaker huh. and CO of the North Saskatchewan Regiment. And eventually, he became the brigade commander for 38 Brigade. And I'd first met him as a as a Mass Corporal Section 2IC in Germany in 1982. Wow. So
0: not only a change into the reserves, but also a change into the armor Corps.
1: As for me, uh, I'd done my five years in cadets. I I, I really embraced the program. And then jump over to the regimental side. It was lockstep. Let's just get on with it. Right.
0: So let's move on to the next question. What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement?
1: I I don't think there's any one. Uh, I've I've kind of listed a couple here after I looked through the questions. And there's kind of three, three and a half things that that I kind of focused on. Certainly... I think with the Black Watch there were there were a couple things. We had done a number of royal parade with the Colonel in Chief at the time, the Queen Mother. Right. And one of them was that the Queen Mother's ninetieth birthday in June of nineteen ninety, actually doing that parade in London on horse guards as a, a sergeant in the color party. It was a great experience. It was not a it was not a great two weeks of drill. It was difficult. Certainly the, the London Sergeant Major put the boots to us. But it was to, to be part of that of which was, you know, fifteen hundred men and women on parade, fifteen hundred civilians from various patron organizations, thousands of people in attendance, and to be at the, the center of London for the for such a fantastic event that uh, the 1987 was the 125th anniversary of the black Watch and, and being part of that as well so that was great I think in my time with the Calgary Highlanders because they moved it to Calgary in 1995 I think for for that one it was a case of we built the regiment up well, we embraced the buildup into the war in Afghanistan, and in uh, for Task Force 106 and Task Force 108, being able to send a significant number of soldiers and watching those guys get ready, watching them grow, watching the regiment take pride and be able to move a significant number of people into a task force from one specific reserve regiment was unprecedented, largely. Certainly on Task Force 108, McHale Heis put 63 people, officers and NCOs and NCMs, into one rotation. Right. Although, and it's funny because it's, it's the flip side of it is, as great as it was to send everybody on that, the burden that was maintained back at home by the guys who had to fill the gap and still do the work, minus 63 people, was certainly felt just as much as, as guys in theatre. Absolutely. I take pride as, at the time I was the QMSI and for 108 to became the RSM. I take pride in having watched the regiment develop and be able to take on that challenge. And I think that the last one is, with Sculpture having deployed with you, and, and you would know this from our time there, the ability to go to an army and a culture and influence and actually see the change. Because I think if, if we look here in, in North America and we try to influence change, it's such a slow-moving process because it's a bigger machine and it, it doesn't move as quickly. But over there, small changes can fight away, and it's great to see how people develop. And then ultimately, and we can talk a little later maybe if you want about up sculpture, but when I went back for the last three months and I, and I was asked to oversee the construction of a FOB and a fibula site, I think the, and for me, this is probably the penultimate thing in my career, Right, the ability to take my civilian skills in construction management and combine them with my military skills in theater to produce something concrete, no pun intended, <laughs> but something concrete in another country for them to train on, to me, that was probably the the best thing that I've done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's like when I did development training with the security force that we had, the local security team there get to combine your two skill sets.
1: I think a case of, especially in a smaller mission, and although at the time, obviously Afghanistan gets a lot of the press, in the smaller mission where you're only 10 or 12 or 13 or 14 guys, everybody has to bring more to the game in terms of being able to be more versatile. Right. And, and everything you do, and especially as reservists, and we often overlook the skill sets that we have and talk about what can you bring to the mission. But if you look into East Timor and the first time the New Zealand army went in, they took a normal infantry battalion and went in and came out and said, we can't do a lot of this work because a lot of it was reconstruction. So the next time they went around, they looked at it and said, let's look at the TA, the Territorial Army, the the reserves in their sets. And they went looking for plumbers and electricians and carpenters to get that skill set in a military context to help them. So very often that's overlooked, but I think the skill sets that reservists have that can add to what we do, I think that's probably an area we have to look at a little better. And I think in the case of sculpture, you and I were able to use our own personal skill sets to up the game that we were presenting over there. Certainly.
0: So moving on to the next question, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer both for you. <laughs> Influences, there were two. And I kind of break my time up between my time in the Black Watch, which was 1982 to 1995, and my time in the Calgary Highlanders, which was 1995 to my current time at the Brigade Headquarters. In the Black Watch, I'd say probably my, the greatest influence for me was a guy at the time was a, the name of a war officer, Claude M.L. Uh, Claude had been a long time in, in the regiment. Big, big man, but loved the regiment. Embraced it. He, he just grew. He drank in the Black Watch every day, which is which is kind of funny because he was a big francophone guy, mm. and here he is in the middle of the Scottish regiment. But he he embraced everything that was the Black Watch. The thing I remember the most about Claude, and this is I just got promoted to sergeant, and Claude had been in the mess as a warrant for a number of years. And he'd been a sergeant obviously for a, prior to that. Claude took me under his wing here because I had come off uh, the ICC program and I was pretty much full of myself about how great I was going to solve the army. <laughs> and and he sort of he sort of pushed that down a little bit, but it, but did a great deal in influencing me into understanding my role as an NCO and as a leader. Not tactically and not from the technical perspective, but from the soft skill side of being that leader in the mess, in the army, in the community, and being a mentor and developing those skills. And I learned a great deal from Claude about having to change my approach. That it can't be just all hard and charging towards the door. Sometimes you've got to sit back and, and you've got to spend the time to listen and you've got to spend the time to talk. And you've got to be a better leader all the time. From that aspect, Claude Mel Claude Mel was a great influence there. When I came to Calgary in 1995, the first couple of years were kind of bounced around a lot of different people I worked with. Late in the first year I was there, uh, Captain John Alden returned. And John was, coincidentally, uh, originally a Black Watch guy as well, who we, we had met many years prior. John showed up at the Cal Highs as a captain. He'd already been the RSM of the, of the Seaforth. He'd been the RSM of one of the gun batteries in Alberta. His civilian job had moved him around, so he'd had considerable exposure as an NCO and as a sergeant major, and now he's a captain. When I was a QMSI and as the RSM, John, uh, Captain Alden, John Alden, was working in the building. And very often, it was for me, he was a touchstone. As a former RSM, It was somebody I could go to on a daily basis while I was in the Army to sit down and talk about the issues. And it was fantastic to be able to sit down with a guy who, A, had a shared background regimentally, but also understood the challenges I was facing. Right. It and was, it was there to provide the advice. And it was it was never a condescending issue. It was always it was always something to learn. It was always you'd always have a good chuckle about the problems you were facing because they're no different than the problems he faced 20 years earlier. But he was always there to provide that advice, and it was a great calming influence. That as hectic as things got, I could always sit in his office, have a coffee, and go, "What do you think you would do on this case?"
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Character-wise, from the serving members, I'm going to leave that alone simply because I'm not going to incriminate anybody. <laughs> Probably one of the greatest guys I met was a a, a former. Calgary Highlander who served in World War II and eventually in Korea with the engineers. A guy by the name of Floyd Rourke, and Floyd recently passed away in 2012. Last Corporal Floyd Rourke won the DCM in Northern Holland in 1944. A great guy. Just he was just a little man. He was just I think at the maybe five foot six, five foot six and a half at best. Couldn't weigh much more than 145, 160 pounds at best. Floyd was just a little guy from a small town in the middle of Alberta who joined up with the regiment, worked through the entire war, survived everything, got the DCM, was nominated for a DCM on another occasion. The thing I'll always remember about Floyd, though, is I saw him when I first came to the regiment in 95, 96. Floyd showed up for everything. He's one of these guys who was always at every event where a veteran needed to be. And most guys are wearing the blue blazer and the gray flannels and the regimental crest and the tie. Floyd would show up and he'd have the gray flannels on and the regimental tie, and his Glengarry, and the most god-awful tartan jacket you've ever seen. <laughs> but he wore that thing with such pride. And it, it was the regimental tartan, so it was fantastic. But he would never resort to the blue blazer. This was his signature thing. And Floyd, as, as the years passed, he became a little more crippled up and a little slower moving around. And he, you know, he was a little mobility challenge, but he still got about but I'll always remember, and, and having been in Europe with him on a number of occasions for Battlefield tours, any time a camera came out, and Floyd was generally hunched over and, and having a hard time moving about, the minute a camera came out or somebody wanted to pose for a picture with him, straight as an arrow, drew, you know, <laughs> parade square, perfect, big smile on his face, chatted away, chat, away. The camera moves and he goes, okay, good, that's over. <laughs> but he was a great guy. Right to, right to the end when he passed, He was just he, there were so many great things about talking to him. One of the things, though, and, and we've learned over the time, Floyd would never talk about what he did in the war. And he'd seen some horrific things, obviously, in World War II. And he would not talk about it at all for years. It just was one of those things. It was kept to him, and and to and that's where it stayed. And late in 2009, 2010, I got time to travel in Europe with him privately. We'd taken him around for a couple of events. And he finally opened up at one point. We're sitting there, but it, because it was soldier to soldier. Right. And it wasn't because somebody asked him, because it was, it was he decided it was the time to tell the tale. And I'll always remember that he was, he was a great guy for that. And he was a great guy for his love of the regiment, his love of the soldiers. And the soldiers embraced him. He was like their mascot. He was this 85-year-old mascot that they would take around, and it actually got to the point in, in 2010 on in the battlefield tour with the Calgary Highlanders, and we had about 80 people on the tour, and, and Mr. Rourke was on the tour. I took the opportunity then, as I was the RSM, that every day I assigned two soldiers to Mr. Rourke, that they had to help him out, because, again, he was a little challenged getting around. But that way they, they also had the opportunity they could spend the day talking to him, and he could spend the day talking to them. So every day for the two weeks we were there, two other soldiers got to spend time with Mr. Rourke, and I think he greatly enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's probably an opportunity for him to finally decompress as well.
1: Yeah, I think it was. We had a great photo that came out of that. We're at Vimy. We were doing the replaying, and Mr. Rourke was walking up the walkway. The guy that we had from to him that day was a Corporal Vlachik. And Corporal Velocic had been wounded in Afghanistan in December of the previous year. And he was struggling to come back to the Army as well. Different wars of different generations. Spending the day together at Vimy Ridge. Well, I think for for him as well as, as for our guys, it was a great opportunity to sort of open up as a soldier again in a soldier's environment.
0: Right. So you brought up your European tour. And one of my favorite Emmett Kelly stories is...
1: I'm not sure I want to know where this is going. Is on. the situation with
0: the buses and how you maintain discipline, although you maintain discipline with a bit of humor on the buses. And hopefully you're willing to share that because I thought that was very valuable. And I wish I'd have had an opportunity to put it into practice.
1: Well, actually, you know what? For everybody who's listening, this is a, this is a great learning tool. One of the things that we discovered, like, we had 80 guys on the trip and two buses, and, and the arson can only be on one bus. And we all know what road trips are like. And the longer the road trip goes, the, the bigger the risk of things going sideways. So the concern was we wanted to make sure we had a grip on the bus. So basically, I took one warrant officer per bus and put them in charge and not just strictly from the administrative disciplinary extent. but I said, okay, you're free to run a kangaroo court because there needs to be justice. People are going to be late. People are going to forget their bags. People are going to be ill on the bus. Any number of a 1,000 things that can go awry on a trip will happen, but people have to be held accountable. And what I wanted was at the end of the day, if you have to administer some fines to make sure there's justice, then that's what you have to do. And all the money at the end went back on the bar on the last night. We were in Nijmegen. So contrary to uh, to rumors, it did not go to the R7's retirement fund. <laughs> Because that rumor was going pretty good in the first couple of days. But what it allowed us to do was to, to actually, and, and it was slow, you know, it, it was slow and evolving. But by day two or day three, the warrants got their uh, they got their, with their feet underneath them. And, and there was there was a couple of things that they came out of it that were pretty funny. Because I remember uh, one officer, Chris Tucker, was at the, the front of the first bus, which is the bus with the honoraries and the COs and kind of the older crowd. The bus number two with the band and the troops. So it was a little tougher crowd that had to get worked. Different issues on different buses. And I'll remember that Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon was late for the bus. And he had brought his dad, retired Brigadier General Brian Vernon, on the trip with us. So Warren Tucker's at the front of the bus, and he's got the microphone, and he says, I've got some fines today. So we administer some fines for other people. And he says, and "Now I've come to one that's kind of outside my arcs. The CO, the Lieutenant Colonel, is, has been late for the bus, and I don't feel that I have the powers to, uh, to administer punishment. So Warren Tucker just, without even hesitating, hands the microphone over to, to General Vernon, who happily picks up the microphone and says, Diamonds have to be kept, 50 euros. So a 50-year-old fine for the lieutenant colonel just like that out of the blue. We're like, holy crap. <laughs> well, like all good things, karma comes to get you. And a few days later, we're leaving Eep, and I'm the last person getting on the bus, and I've gone through the hotel lobby, and there was there were a couple of bags left in the lobby. And so I put both the bags under the bus, and, and I went onto the bus, and I talked to Warren Tucker, and I went, I'm going to have to have some justice here. There were two people who left their bags out, one who will remain for this story unnamed, only because he was able to pay his fines in another manner, that, which, which was fine as well. <laughs> but one of them was General Vernon, who had left his bag in the lobby. So I turn it over to Tucker and to Warren Tucker, and and again late in the day he's got the fines and he administers the fines and he says again I've got somebody who is uh, outside my arcs and this time he hands the uh, the microphone over to Lieutenant Colonel Vernon who is more than happy to pick up the microphone and and regale us with as a young boy I was always told one man one kit, fifty euros. <laughs> So it was good. You know, it was it was lighthearted, but at the end of the day, everybody got it. Everybody was on time for the bus. Uh, and it's, you know what, you just got to keep it light. And again, it's just going to be a sense of you can't let people run amok. But everybody took it a good stride. And in the end, I think we ended up putting a good uh, seven or 800 euros on the bar in Nijmegen for the 80 <laughs> people on the trip. And, and all was well, if not a little slow moving on the, the ride to Frankfurt the next morning. <laughs>
0: Well, I can think of a lot of road trips that I've been on and bus trips and things of that nature where that little kangaroo court system would have come in very handy. And unfortunately,
1: I never had a chance to put it into practice, but sounds like it works well. Oh, it does work well. And I think Highs are doing another centennial battle or a battlefield tour next year for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of St. Julian Wood, uh, the Battle of Second Epe. This time, I think, they're looking at about three buses. <laughs> so they've already started anticipating who's going to be in charge of the buses for the Kangaroo Court. <laughs> so apparently it was well-received and people are looking forward to justice. Excellent. So what can I tell you?
0: So, Emmett, we've reached the final question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome?
1: You know, it's, uh, I was trying to pin that one out before. i kind of have not really sure where I wanted to go with that. So I've, there were so many things over the years. I think the first one, and, and again, I'll split them up by regiments, because my career is really two, well, it's three portions now. But it was largely two halves, one in Quebec and one here in the West. And I think in before I left the Black Watch, and, and I was one of the first people to go through the ICC program on the reserve side in terms of doing the regular force course. And I think it was a case of just trying to prove, working with my regular force counterparts in Fire Brigade at the time, that we could do that job. And I think it was a case of things like the Rizzo program were coming out. Where we're generating better officers. We're starting to generate better NCOs decades of the reserves being a secondary party and having a lesser training system, having to overcome that. And they try to prove that we could do the job and try to get people to buy in that we could do that. So that's kind of a personal one there. I think the role of the QMSI and eventually the RSM, I think the, probably the biggest challenge is getting people to understand how to develop their subordinates, how to, to do career management, which is, I think was often overlooked in the reserve side, Right. and and it, it's definitely required. The Army Reserve is much more complicated now than it used to be, and trying to get people through the courses and through the timings, to understand their commitment levels and planning well in advance, and having to sit down with a sergeant and go, I need you to be free for this course in two years. Start looking at, and lining that time up. That's been a fantastic challenge. I think we've done fairly well with it out here. But it's, it's got to get passed on to every R It's got to get passed on to every warrant, every sergeant to sit down with their own guys and do that and stop trying to react at the last minute to loading courses. We really have to be thinking way out in advance and managing a career for what is a part-time job.
0: Right. And I think that's something we've always asked for is the ability to forecast courses out two years in advance.
1: Yeah, we want it. I don't think we haven't cracked that nut, obviously. I think the system is getting a little more predictable, but I think that predictability still ha- is, is away from where we need it to be. And as you're know, as you aware in the, in the Army Reserve, certainly, the soldier at 19 can give you six or seven weeks in the summer without much hesitation. The warrant officer of the MWO at 35 or 40 years old is going to be pretty hard-pressed to come up with three or four free weeks in the summer. Absolutely. Without much advance notice. For every guy that has to go, as you know, for every, every course that gets moved one week to the left, that's another series of negotiations back to the home office yeah. to talk to the guy who's going to cover your shift or the person who's going to have to adjust their vacation to now meet your new change. Yeah. And I think that dynamic has often been overlooked, and that's part of the challenge that we have to in career management. And re- requiring the predictability, that's probably the, the thing that we have to work on the most. Certainly.
0: So we've come to the end of the four questions. Is there anything on the horizon for you, anything that you're working on right now?
1: Uh, a number of things. I'm into getting into my third year now as the Brigade Sergeant Major for 41 Brigade, and enjoying it. It's, it's certainly been a challenge. It certainly used up more time than I thought it would, but that's fine. It's, uh, I, I've enjoyed it. There's a couple of things I've been working on, one which you know of, I'd gotten into working with the Infantry Corps, and I'd attended enough Infantry Corps conferences over the years that I looked at I I it and went, "Again, at the Corps is Air Force, but what are we getting out of it as, as Army Reservists? And with 51 infantry units in the Army Reserve, where was our voice? So I'd taken on the role as the Infantry Corps Sergeant Major for the Primary Reserve. So working in concert with Chief Front Officer Terry Garand, the Infantry Corps Sergeant Major on the regular Army side. So now that the issues and the concerns and the observations and ideas of the 51 Infantry Reserve units are now tied in concert with what the Corps itself is doing. So we now we're developing a better voice for ourselves and better opportunity to get our, our issues addressed versus just being lumped in with, with the Corps in general. So there's that. The other piece I'm working on now at West is the cadet program at West is fairly successful. The Army cadets are successful. The Air Cadet Program, strangely enough, is massively successful. But what I've discovered in in working with them off and on is they don't have any real NCO leadership. Whereas in the Army, we've developed NCOs even in the Army Cadet Program. In the Air Cadet Program, they're focused on the officer end of it. Right. And as a result, they don't have any real NCO leadership at the squadron floor to talk about it. And I'm starting to get Army Reserve NCOs and in in some cases some corporals and stuff involved with local air squadrons to provide a little bit of leadership training at the NCO level to better prepare them for their summer tasks. It gets out of, of the Army window, but in the end, we're actually, I think statistically, we're pulling in three times as many Air Cadets as recruits into the Army Reserve as we are Army Cadets. Right. So we might as well focus on what is a good group for us to draw from and assist them in, in becoming better at what they do. Certainly.
0: Yeah, Terry Garand, I met with him uh, two weeks ago, and hopefully he'll be a guest on the show soon enough.
1: Pull him in. i got to hear what he's got to say about the
0: core. <laughs> so anyhow, we've come to the end of the podcast. So is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize?
1: Uh, you know, Mike, uh, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, and I think you're doing great work with this. I think it's it's great that it gets out there, and, and some of the voices of what people are doing are getting captured out there. I think that's, that's fantastic. I think from the Army Reserve side, we've come a long way, and I'm going into year 32 here, and, and I remember what it was like when I joined, and not just about equipment and, and people. We've come so far in terms of the training, what our goals and aspirations are, where we are seen within the Army. It's, it's been great to watch this evolution over 30-plus years of how the Army, the Army Reserve has evolved and what it's come to mean to the Army. And not just us, but I think the Army has a better appreciation in general as to what the Reserve can bring to the game. But like all things, kind of that interwar period, attain the enthusiasm to have us there and maintain the enthusiasm to work with the regular Army. So we have to avoid kind of the, the ebb and flow that we've we've experienced forever in the history of the Army Reserve. If you look, you know, post-World War One, big dip, get rid of the Reserves. Post-World <laughs> World War II, big dip. And again, we're coming out of Afghanistan, and I think we have to make sure we maintain our positioning with the Army so that everybody appreciates our relevance. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you, Emmett, for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get to catch up again this September at the Army SPS in Ottawa. I don't know if you're going to... Well, I'll
1: be there and I'll be there for the Army run. So you'll see, I'll be the guy ahead of you. Yeah, you'll be looking at my back. But anyhow. All
0: right. Thanks again. Take care. No problem, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at Mike Lacroix, cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, Please click the PayPal link on the web page. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. And tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.